Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Sturkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. All right, good morning. Let me get you to do me a big favor right now. Everybody just cough real good. Yeah, thank you. Oh, that helps. Oh, that feels good. Because all through this service, you're going to be driven to want to cough for me, okay? But I'm just going to tell you, it won't do you a bit of good. It doesn't do me a bit of good, okay? So we're going to work through this, and I'm going to utilize the assistance of Clark. And so uh, when I get to a scripture, because there's a lot of passage today, he's going to read it for me to save a little bit of voice. So I'm excited to get to preach today because I didn't get to preach last week. And uh, the devil don't want me to preach. He don't want me to preach this message. He doesn't want me to preach any messages. But I'm here to tell you today, today's message is going to begin in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to go into 13. We're going to land in 14 next week. following week, we're going to be in 15. And I'm telling you, God wants to speak to your heart. I want you to know there's a message for today for you written 3,500 years ago, and it's beautiful. We're going to learn today that when God takes us to a new place, um, it's different than what we would prescribe for ourselves. But if we will be faithful, God will meet us there, and when we get there, it's going to be beautiful. I want to encourage you with that because God's a big God, and he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. So today's story begins with a guy who has this conviction in his heart. He's a 40-year-old man, and he's got a burden for a certain people group. And because of that, he murders a man, finds himself for the next 40 years as a fugitive with sheep, borrowed sheep in a wilderness. So now at age 80, he meets a burning bush named I am on the mountain called Sinai. For the next 40 years, he will be called to lead a people through another wilderness. When he thought sheep were bad, then he gets a nation of people, and it's even worse. And so that's kind of where we pick up today. Now, God has been doing something in their life. He's delivering them from captivity. And so the title of the message is this, it's time to move. And I want you to know every day in your life, every day in my life, at some level, we are like the nation of Israel. Because a walk with God, to be a disciple of Jesus, every day we're invited to move into a new dimension into a new place. He, he doesn't want us to become people that are comfortable, that are okay with status quo. He, he wants your journey with him to be vibrant and fresh and new. We don't do that often. We get stuck. Anybody ever been stuck on your journey with Jesus? Amen. It's what we do. God doesn't want that. And so the title is, It's Time to Move. Because when God invites us to move, there's a moment when we feel it. We we, we won't have all the answers, but we feel God's invitation out of one thing and into another. And when that happens, 
our hopes are high, our heart is encouraged, because it's time for point number one, a new life, a new life. Everybody can have a new life every single day with Jesus. That's what it's supposed to be, because every day we make mistakes, and tomorrow everything is new, and we get to start over. It's a brand new day. It's a rainy Sunday, and you're in the best possible place you could be in the Lord's church. And so when we talk about a new life, this is what it sounds like. Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to get Clark to read for me verses 37 through 41. Clark? Hold up. You're not. Is it on? Can you get him on there, guys? Try it now. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, plus their dependents. A mixed multitude also went up with them in flocks and herds, a very large number of cattle. They baked cakes of bread without yeast, using the dough they had brought from Egypt, for it was made without yeast, because they were thrust out of Egypt and were not able to delay. They could not prepare food for themselves either. Now the length of the time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on the very day, all the regiments of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. All right. Now let's talk about this a little bit. This is the making of a miracle of epic proportions. That's what's going on here. And sometimes when we read God's word, we fail to um, grab on to the magnitude of what he's doing. And it becomes routine. We read it and we're like, yeah, I've heard the story before. No big deal. This is a really big deal. And I want you to understand something today that throughout God's, book, God's word, 66 books, it's chock full of epic proportion miracles at, the, at, at just the, the thought from God. So in what we're, what we're seeing right here in this miracle, it says, so they're on the move and they have support. It says there's, I want you to read this, 600,000 men on foot plus their dependents. That's what it says. Okay, that's important. We'll get to it in a minute. Now he goes on and he says, and they're mixed. It's a mixed multitude. What is that? We learned that Egyptians left with Israel. After 10 plagues, there were Egyptians who said, we're stupid, okay? Their God is the real deal. We're going with them, okay? I, I don't care what I need to do. I'm going with them. And so they left with them. So they're mixed. They're in a hurry. It says they were thrust <coughs> out of Egypt. Now, they, they've been wanting this day for 400 years. They've been longing for it, crying for it, praying for it, 400 years. And finally, finally, it says in verse 41, at the end of 430 years. Well, what is that? Is it a discrepancy? Is it a confusion? No. 400 years in slavery, 30 years not in slavery, under the governorship of Joseph. 430 total years. They've been in a rental. They've been in a borrowed country, okay? Now, they're being released on this very day, God's deliverance day. Listen, God always has a plan. God always has a timeline. And God always has a way to implement his plan. Always. There's no surprises for God. 
ever, okay? So that's what's going on. Now, here's the thing. Let's unpack that a little bit. What does this look like? What does this feel like? What is the energy like in this new life? Okay, you ready? Two and a half million people. That's the equivalent of 25 Neyland stadiums at full capacity. So now imagine 25 Neyland stadiums full to capacity, all releasing at the same time, and they all beat Alabama on the same day. You get the feeling? I mean, they're singing, dancing, throwing babies in the sky, kicking the cat, everything that's fun, they're doing it. That's what the energy's like, okay? The only difference is they didn't just come to the game. They brought their couches and the bunk beds. They got, they got the cows. They've got the goats and the sheep and the chickens. They've got the spoils of Egypt. That's what's going on. That is the energy of this day. Everybody and everything is invited to this party. After 400 years, you got to step into that a little bit to, to, to imagine what God is doing. And when you get there, you're like, you can't help but think that would be a cool day. That would just be a fun day. Sure it was. So amazing that God would allow and inspire Moses to tell us all about it. Now, that's the energy of the day. What about the expectation of the new life? Keep in mind, 430 years they've been in this place, and now they're liberated, emancipated, and free, and they're excited, man. What, what can they expect? They have no formal religion. The Bible wasn't written yet. Moses hadn't penned the Torah, the Pentateuch. They had no prophets. They got no religion. They only know God from their ancestors' stories. Number two, no formal education, no government structure, no economic training, no military power to protect them. But they're on the move, and they're free, and it feels good. Let me tell you something. Listen to this. This is so good. When God sets you free, you don't need to have all of the answers. You don't have to be qualified to walk in the freedom that God is liberating you to. Sometimes we're, we're afraid. We're like, I'm not going. I'm not stepping into that new part of my journey, into that new life, because I don't have all the answers. I'm not qualified. I don't have this. I don't have that. God says, no, no. I am your answer. You follow me, and you don't have to have all of that stuff right now. That's what the journey feels like. Now, so now they're going to follow a new and unfamiliar leader into a new and unfamiliar land to pursue a new and unfamiliar freedom and a God who they're only vaguely familiar with. But they have this going for them. They're huge. Okay, they got a lot of resources, manpower. Number two, they knew how to build a kingdom from the footing up. That's what they did. Number three, they knew they had a really cool leader with a really powerful stick. That'll take you places. And number four, they knew in their soul 
that they had a God who was in it to win it. And even if they didn't have the other three things, when you know your God is in it to win it on your behalf, that's all you need. And I want to tell you this, God has already done everything he needs to do to win it on your behalf. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Then when he rose from the dead, proving he was victorious over death, hell, and the grave, he won it for you. It's already won. We, you can read the whole book. If you're a believer, if your life, if your soul is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, listen, we win. No matter what your day looks like today, in the end, we win. And that's good news. Now, they're thrust out of Egypt, and this is the making of a miracle of epic proportions. And they better have a big God waiting for them on the other side. Amen. But let me pause right here. Because we live in a world of critics. And when I say this is a miracle of epic proportions, two and a half million people on the move, being liberated by the, from the most powerful force on the planet, Egypt, some would say it's not really that big a deal. Did you know that? Some would say it's, it's a good story, but it's not this miracle. So you and I, the reason we're, I'm going to digress for a minute is because you and I, as God chasers, as Jesus followers, we get to decide independently, individually, how we read this book, how we listen to the word of God, how we accept it, how we digest it, and how our faith and trust in God develops because of it. You get to choose what you do with it. Are the stories in this book simply fables of antiquity? Are the stories in this book embellishments of historical facts? Or are the stories in this book miracles of epic proportion? As we were reminded at midweek service on Wednesday, astrology, archaeology, anatomy, accuracy, they all point to the integrity of God's word, that it's true, that it's God-breathed, that it's beyond human penmanship. And so I want to warn you that there's always a critic to God, always a critic to God. You, you see, in heaven, the critic's name was Lucifer. He was the worship leader. Sorry, Caleb. <laughs> Caleb's not Lucifer. He's Caleb. But Lucifer was the anointed cherub, and he was God's critic. He had a new plan. On earth, in Genesis, we find the first earthly critic. His name is Satan, who is the fallen Lucifer. Today, in our education system, there is a critic to the Word of God. It's called the theory of evolution. In seminaries and in pulpits around the world, there's a critic to the Word of God. It's called liberalism. So the critics are always there, and the critics will be in your ear. Sometimes the critic comes from within you, where you begin to be a skeptic and you question the integrity of the Word of God. So I want you to know the position of our church because I'm the pastor and I'm honored to be pastor. And this is the position of your pastor. 
and it's the direction of our church. I want to be very, very clear. I did not participate in the creation account. I did not ride in a boat on a flooded globe. I did not see the walls of Jericho fall. I did not share a little boy's lunch with 5,000 dudes on a hillside. I did not get invited to the upper room dinner after the resurrection, but neither was the critic. But God did. God was there. God was at every one of those things, and he sent his Holy Spirit, Theonoustos, to breathe an accurate record of all of those events. And you and I get to a place where we hear a story, we read a story, and we get to decide, it's true. I'm going to plant my feet on it as true, and I'm not going to question. And if somebody wants to question it, that's fine. That's between them and God. But as for me, I've got to trust God for it, for being truthful to his word. And that's the place we land. You say, what does that have to do with this story found in Exodus chapter uh, 12 and 13. Because there's a, there is a critic to the story. I don't know if you know it, we live in a world that wants to deconstruct things. You, you heard that word lately? We need to de deconstruct. We need to deconstruct the police force. We need to deconstruct our government. We need to deconstruct our school system. We need to deconstruct our religion. And most of the time, those words are coming from people who couldn't construct a little tyke's playhouse or build a table from Costco. They don't need to deconstruct anything. They can't construct nothing. And we listen to them. We listen to them. Now, hopefully nobody in here values any of that because it's lunacy. It's absolute absurdity that we need to just deconstruct everything that God has built in our nation, in our lives, and in our churches. Do things need help? Yeah. Are things broken sometimes? Yes. But we don't need to deconstruct them. We don't have the capability of doing that. And what we would build back based on the condition of our cultural heart would be far worse than where we are right now. And so we need to understand that criticism is real. Now, it begins like this. Genesis chapter 1. If you are Lucifer, fallen to earth, namely Satan, and you want to undermine the future of the story of God, doesn't it make sense a real good place to begin the journey of deconstruction would be, the, would be to be the critic of Genesis chapter 1? You see, if you can kick the legs out from under Genesis 1, you've undermined the rest of the book. And so that's what happens. We begin to say, well, it's not, it's, it's, just a, it's just a fable. It's not really factual. Here's what it looks like. Several years ago, I was youth pastor at a church in Alabama, and uh, I was teaching the youth. We had a big youth group, and I was teaching them Genesis. And I taught them six literal days for creation, six 24-hour days. And one day I'm at church, and I get cornered by a man. He's a good man, but he's also the science teacher at the high school. And he cornered me, and he said, I want to know why you're teaching the students to be confused. And I said, about what? He said, about creation. I said, I didn't know I was confusing them. He said, you're teaching six literal days. 
I said, oh, yeah, that. Yeah, I do that. Why are you doing that? Because the Bible says six days. And the Hebrew word is yom. And yom always means a 24-hour day. So I kind of think that's what it says. And he said, I don't think science and, and scripture have to fight each other. I think they complement each other. He said, so much so that I believe a day has a billion years, has billions of years between each day. And I said, oh, the gap theory, as if I'd never heard that before. And he goes, yeah. And he said, this way he said, I don't know why preachers have to limit God to create everything that we enjoy in six, six literal days. And I said, well, I don't know about preachers, but I know about me. I'm not limiting God to anything. He said that. If he would have said God created everything out of nothing in a nanosecond, I would teach the students God said he created it all in a nanosecond. But he didn't say that. He said six days. And so the argument wasn't over. It went on and on. And I'm just telling you today, you get to choose what you believe about God's word. And quite honestly, what you believe about creation doesn't matter to me because it's not on the quiz of whether or not you go to heaven. But the problem is, when we start embracing theories that are not facts, where does it stop? Because ultimately, if we're not careful, we could embrace a theory about how we do get into heaven, and that will be on the quiz to get into heaven. So we just need to be very careful about who we listen to and, and how we process the information that we get. So what does that have to do with this story? Are you ready? I told you two and a half million people approximately left Egypt, headed to the promised land. We read the passage. Clark read it. I read it again. It said 600,000 men and their families. A critic, it, these are in seminaries, sometimes in pulpits, intelligent people will argue that this is really not that big a deal. There really probably was not two and a half million people, and there really weren't 600,000 men and their families. Well, how do they do that? This is what they'll say. You see in the Hebrew, the word for thousand, 600,000, in the Hebrew is 600 aleph men, or 600 aleph, not men. And the word aleph can mean a thousand. Okay, we're going to give you that. But it can also mean a tribe, a clan, or a village. And so maybe there weren't 600,000 men plus their families. Maybe there were 600 tribes, clans, or villages. And probably these villages only had about 50 people in each one. So really there were only about 30,000 people that left on that day. Now, you say, well, that's still a good story. It ain't two and a half million. It's not 25 kneeling stadiums. You're talking about uh, Thompson Bowling, big deal, okay? That's what they say. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, if there's 30,000 people total, that means there's six to 8,000 men. Would that be enough to make Pharaoh the most powerful king in the world, so fearful of a coup and an uprising? that he would start murdering baby boys? No. Would, would, would 30,000 people leaving 
create such a worry in Pharaoh's mind that he would endure 10 plagues and ultimately sacrifice his son to the pass at the Passover? It doesn't make sense. And so when we look at it, we realize God probably simply says what he means and means what he says. And when we understand that, <clears throat> our faith journey gets better. Oh, why do I think there were two and a half million people? Genesis 22, 17 is a good reason. Listen to what God told Abraham. He said, indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. It sounds kind of like two and a half million people walking out of Egypt into a promised land. But it could be 30,000 if that's what you want to believe about your God. Now, let me give you another crit critique of a scriptural view, a simple, traditional scriptural view. Well, not only was it probably not two and a half million people because of the word, of, the word LF, but also it's not likely that Israel would start with 70 people, which would be the initial value. <laughs> My math teacher over there which would be the initial value and that they would grow to, uh, to 2.5 million in 430 years. I mean, that's unlikely. The reproduction rate just doesn't look like that. And we hear it and all of a sudden you say, okay, maybe it was 30,000 if we're not careful. So could it be two and a half million people? If you start out with 70, listen, listen let, me, let me go to this. I looked at this up. Britannic, Encyclopedia Britannica. This is what it says. They wrote an article called Natural Increase and Population Growth. It says human reproduction rate can be and has been recorded as high as 4.1% in Kenya as recent as in the 1980s. But in normal developing countries, natural increase is generally lower. These countries average about two and a half percent per year. And then it goes on and it says, as a rule of thumb, for much of the developing world, the rate of growth of urban areas is twice that of the population growth in the metropolitan areas. Thus, in a population growth of 2% in a metropolitan area, it's likely that urban growth would be 4%. So here's the question. If you have 70 people and 430 years as your exponential term, um, what, kind of, what kind of population growth do you need to have? Are you ready? You need 3.5%, which means the metro area, Egypt, would be one and three quarters percent, meaning urban Goshen, would be 3.5%. Now, how do you know this? How can you figure this out? Because you have, if you have a teacher, a math teacher for a wife, she shows you how to do it. You take out your smartphone, you pull up your calculator, you turn your phone sideways, sideways, that way you have all those other buttons. And this is what you put in. You can figure how much money you'll make with, with the interest rate over so many years. It's the same formula. It's the exponential formula. Close. Yeah, close enough. That's what we're going with. They don't need to know the difference. Shh. 
So you put in, you put in 70, your initial value. And then you put parentheses and you put one plus your growth rate, one plus zero three five parentheses. And then there's a little button on there. It's an exponential button. It's got an X with a Y up above it. You click it. And then you put how many years there are? 430. And guess what you get? 2,656,748. So wise guy was wrong. It wasn't 2.5 million. It was 2.6567487 million. So smoke that. Okay? And I'm not here to argue how many people came out. I wasn't there. I didn't get in on the march. But I'm telling you, God says what he means and means what he says. And we have the opportunity to choose. So I just want to encourage you, when you read this book, when you hear this book taught, be sure that you have on your biblical glasses. Be sure that you're not looking at God's word through a pair of dollar store readers borrowed from some yahoo who wouldn't know God if he showed up in a 14-karat gold tuxedo. Just, just put your biblical lens on when you're looking at spiritual things and let God enlighten it for you. So at the end of the day, your pastor is gullible enough to believe that when Scripture says 600,000 men and their families and a mixed crowd left, he believes there were 600,000 men plus their families and a mixed crowd who left. And you can believe the same. And if we're wrong and we get to heaven and there are 30,000 of them, we can say, huh, we're still here. Okay? Now, I'll put it to you this way. I don't go to the heart doctor to have my, my teeth cleaned. And I don't go to the quickie lube to get a haircut. And I don't go to a skeptic to learn about the one I believe in and his word. And you can live by that. And you'll, God will reveal things that will change your life. So when it's time to move, God says it's time to move into a new life. Now here's where we're going from here. The reason why I had to share that, I had to digress, had to take that little chase off trail, is because there's a whole lot of miracles we're going to see even next week. And we're going to have to unpack them. And we're going to listen to the skeptic. And we're going to get to decide for ourselves, just like what we just talked about, 600,000 men. That's what we believe. If you want to check, don't believe. That's cool. Doesn't matter to me. But here's the point. Um, when, now, when God says it's a new life and he's going to take us into that new life, I want you to understand something. There's a new direction. The reason it's a new direction is because God's way may not look like the way you would prescribe for yourself. And you know how this works. If you have something you want in your life in the future, something you need, what we do is we kind of write a narrative. We come up with a, a plan, strategic plan for our life, and we hold it up to God for a rubber stamp. God, this is what I'd like. Will you give me a stamp, please? And will you make this happen? Okay? That's wrong. That's not the way it works. It, it, during worship, sometimes people put both arms up. Everybody put both arms up if you wore deodorant. If you didn't, keep them down. Okay, all right, you can put your hands down. You know what that is when we worship? It's, it's, it's a universal sign of I surrender. You know, if somebody comes in here and says, hey, I want you to stick them up, what do you do? You stick them up. You surrender, right? And, and so getting in on a new life with God means we simply say, I surrender, okay? And, and so when we do that, we accept his new direction. 
Clark, I want you to read Exodus chapter 13, beginning in 17. Um, just, just, I'll tell you what, just read whatever that is. Yeah, just read verse 17. be great. When Pharaoh released the people, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearby. For God said, lest the people change their minds and return to Egypt when they experience war. All right. So he's releasing them. Now, he could have released them and said, hey, Moses, what I want you to do, when you get out of the gate, you just head due east because the promised land's about a month away. Okay? That's what it would have been, a month away. Okay? He didn't do that. He took them in a different direction. Now, why would he do that? He tells us. He said, because he didn't want to take them through the land of the Philistines. Listen, they were slaves. They knew how to work. They weren't trained to fight. They were new at freedom. They weren't ready to fight to defend their freedom. And so God knew they're not ready to fully trust me. The first time they run into a battle with these big, ugly Philistines, a lot of them, they're going to want to go home and be a slave again. And we'll find this to be true as we continue to read through the book of Exodus. And so God says, I've got to take them a different place. Now listen to me, everybody. When God is taking you into a new life, And he has a new direction. The long way is not necessarily the wrong way. You see, we live in a world who wants a shortcut. Let me tell you what that looks like. We can be going down the interstate. If I see 10 or 20 cars hitting their brakes, I'm looking to get off, whether there's an exit or not. I mean, if there's not a fence over there, I'd take it, okay? I, don't want, I, I want a shortcut. I don't want, I don't want to have to sit in traffic. I don't care if it takes me two hours. I'm, I'm trying to beat my time, okay? We live in a world that wants shortcuts. It looks like microwave ovens. It looks like pop tarts. It looks like instant potatoes. It looks like diet pills to get smaller faster and steroids to get bigger faster. We live in a world that wants a shortcut. If ever now and then you like the shorter route, just raise your hand. All right, good, I'm not alone. Thought I might have been the only one. Let me give you an example of one of the funniest, goofiest shortcut stories in American history. 1980, a lady named Rosie Ruiz. Rosie Ruiz won the women's division of the Boston Marathon in 1980. She crossed the finish line first. She beat the world record the Boston Marathon record. And when she got across the finish line, everybody's celebrating Rosie Ruiz because of her record. And they're like, you're amazing. It's a fabulous time. But something wasn't right. Because somebody said, I haven't seen her on any of the video footages on the news. And somebody else began to question her. Do you remember passing the, 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 the landmark she was unfamiliar with the landmarks. And then they noticed something really odd. Are you ready? She wasn't even sweating. She just ran a marathon, didn't even sweat, all right? So what they figured out, Rosie had took off in the race, the Boston Marathon. She ran about a mile. She ducked out into the crowd. She waited patiently, quietly, mysteriously, jumped on a subway, rode to the other end, waited for the leading lady, jumped in front of her, took off running, and crossed the finish line. Now, here's what's strange. 
We want, we want shortcuts so bad. They took away, they stripped her of her crown. And she's dead now. She never admitted that she took a shortcut. She, she said to her dying day, no, I ran the race. It was terribly hard, okay? That's kind of the people we are. And Israel was no different. And I want you to know that sometimes the long way may be hard to get to the place that God wants us to be. But listen to me, the long way is not always the wrong way. And God's way sometimes longer than we think it would, than we think it should be in our life. And so God takes the long way around and he uses it to develop us, to refine us, to prepare us, to build character, trust, faith, and endurance. And let me just tell you something about that long journey. Sometimes it's awful. Okay, can I just say that? Sometimes God's way just kind of stinks, okay? But there's a reason for it. Because while we're looking at the path he has us on, he's looking forward at the destiny he's got us headed for. You get that? While we're looking down at the path and, and we're thinking, this is miserable, woe is me, I just don't get it. We're looking at the path and God in his sovereignty in his omnipotence, he's looking forward and he sees the target, the object of our destiny. He sees that and he sees where we are. And so it's in that place where we have to learn, I'm just going to trust him even when it hurts. I'm going to hang on to him because this path is hard, but the destiny is good. Amen? Now, 430 years is what that path looked like for Israel. <laughs> we hadn't had to do that one. And it's, it's that way throughout the Bible. Moses' life, 40 years as a prince, 40 years shepherding borrowed sheep, 40 years leading a people. It's, it's what it looks like. And he never goes to the promised land. He goes to heaven, and he shows up at the promised land in the New Testament with Jesus. Okay? But it's true all through the Bible. Joseph. Uh, Joseph was Sold into slavery at 17, he would be 30 before he would be the governor. Had to go to jail to get there. You read about David. David was anointed as king, and he had to run for his life for the next 15 years until he would be crowned. So once God starts the process, God will finish the process, and that's what we need to know. And also, I want you to know this. It didn't take God long to get Israel out of Egypt but it would take 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel because they would so simply, we, we have this tendency, this flesh tendency to go back to what we hated so bad. There's people who have addictions in their life, maybe alcohol, maybe uh, pills, maybe um, you know, some form of substance, maybe pornography, maybe relationships, maybe materialism, this stuff that just captivates us. And we get, the Lord sets us free in this new life, gives us a new direction, and we are so prone to going back and thinking, man, it was better there. Israel is going to do that over the next couple of weeks. And although the new direction required more steps and more faith, God knew what was best for his people. So when God says it's time to move into a new life, he offers a new direction. Clark, read verse 18 through um, 22 for me, please. 
So God brought the people around the way of the desert to the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up from the land of Egypt prepared for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the Israelites solemnly swear, God will surely attend to you, and you will carry my bones up from this place with you. They journeyed from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. Now the Lord was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel day or night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Back in 18, there's a real weird phrase. It says, and, and uh, they went up from the land of Egypt prepared for battle. Well, earlier I said they weren't equipped for war. They, weren't, they didn't have any military training. They didn't. You know why they're equipped for battle? Because they've got this thing that nobody's ever seen before, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. At night, the fire would burn, lighten up their trail so they could travel at night. By day, it was a cloud to lead them and protect them from the heat of the sun. Okay, that is their uh, power for battle. Okay, now, I want you to know something. He, he goes on, and he keeps talking about the way. The Lord, listen to, listen to these phrases. He says, um, God brought the people around by the way. Verse 21, the Lord was going before them by day to lead them in the way. Um, Three times he, he uses this word way. God was their way. L listen to me. When God opens up the door to a new life and he provides a new direction, he is your way. Now, you can follow your own way. You can follow somebody else's way, and it will lead to the wrong place. God will never lead you to a place he doesn't want you to go, but you will. I've been in the wrong place because I was listening and following my own way. God will never, ever do that. Jesus said something funny about the way in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. God is always the way. He knows the way. He'll show you the way. And the way that he leads you in will always lead you to the place that he wants you to be. And it may not be the place you want to be, but it'll be the best place because it's the place that he wants you to be. Point number three, a new strategy. We're almost done. Clark, read chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, please. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites that they must turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You're to camp by the sea before Baal, Zephon, opposite, opposite it. Pharaoh will think regarding the Israelites. They're wandering around confused in the land. The desert has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. I will gain honor because of Pharaoh and because of all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So this is what they did. When it was reported to the king of, e of Egypt that the people had fled, the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And the king and his servants said, What in the world have we done? For we have released the people of Israel from serving us. Then he prepared his chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 select chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt and officers on all of them. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the Israelites. Now the Israelites were going out defiantly. The Egyptians chased after them and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth, 
before Baal Zephon. You see why I had him read that? All right, good job, Clark. You nailed that. All right. Now here's the thing: a new strategy. See, God's strategy to accomplish his goal is not your strategy to accomplish his goal. Your strategy is a strategy written to accomplish your goal. There's a big difference. God's goal is not necessarily your goal, okay? So I want you to understand something. He now brings them to a place, man, where they either have to lean in on God or they're toast, okay? He takes them to a place where they have to trust God. When they look forward, they see the Red Sea. When they look left and they look right, they see wilderness. When they look back, they see chariots and an army who hates them. They're in a really awkward place. Why would God do that? I want you to know, sometimes God takes us to a place that we don't want to go to show us something that we would never see otherwise. That's really powerfully true. Sometimes God will take us someplace we really don't want to go because he wants to show us something that we would never see otherwise. You see, he has a plan. He want, he's doing something in your life always, always. And so we would be like Israel You've been in slavery for 400 years and now they're chasing you out. You know you're skipping and singing and having a party and you're leaving and you, you all but expect, you know, the Egyptian uh, bus lines to be out there to pick you up, to take you on over to the promised land, right? It didn't work that way. Sometimes when we, when we get liberated from something, okay, and we start on the journey to complete freedom, to the promised land that God is offering us. Sometimes that journey, that strategy of God's in the middle is difficult. It's hard. But the same, listen, the same God that set you free from that will walk with you in this to get you to there. Sometimes life is hard for me. And I know sometimes life is hard for you. Sometimes we have questions that we certainly can't answer ourselves. God knows the answers to your questions. You can hang on to whatever you want to hang on to. Meanwhile, there's God in heaven, the God of the universe, who extends his hand and says, hey, hold my hand. Walk with me through this because I want to show you something you wouldn't see otherwise. But when we get to the other side of this, you will know that I have been good to you. Now, we're not going to see. We know the rest of the story. We're going to leave them looking at the Red Sea. We're going to leave them listening to the, to, the, to the battle cries of an army behind them, right? We know what's going to happen. They don't get it yet, okay? In conclusion, then, when it's time to move, when God is moving you into a new life, everything's going to be different going to be unfamiliar for a while. It's going to be terribly uncomfortable. It should be. It's new. And when God moves us into a new life, often he's going to choose a new direction, a new path. And it may be unclear at times, but while we're looking at the path, just remember, he's looking at our destiny. 
And to get us where we need to be, he's going to present sometimes a new strategy that, that seems really odd to us. It makes no sense to us. But his strategic plan is to make us who we need to be to prepare us to go where he wants us to go. Sometimes in the middle of this, it's all in preparation, just getting us ready for where he's going to take us, for what's next. Just like Israel, every individual in this room is born into this bondage. It's a bondage to sin, a slaver. We're slaves to sin. You see in Romans 3.23, it says all have sinned. Everybody has sinned and come short of God's glory. And then you keep reading in Romans 6.23, it says, and the penalty of that sin is death. We all deserve to die. But the beauty of God's story is he doesn't stop there, just like he didn't stop for Israel. Romans 6.23, the second part says, there's a free gift of God. It's eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And that's where we are, just like Israel. He stands and looks at our bondage and he invites us out. We have to choose to receive it. We have to walk out into freedom. And that new journey is difficult. And there's some in here who have never surrendered your life to the grace that God offers in Jesus to liberate you from your enslavement to your sin nature. You've just never received it. You know it, you've heard it, but you've never just put your hands up and said, I surrender and given yourself to that. Listen to me. You don't want to leave this world having known the information and never received it into your life. You simply say, God, I know I'm a sinner. You told me. You don't have to convince me. I know it. Number two, you're telling me who I am, but you also told me who you are, that you're a God of grace who offers forgiveness. God, I want Jesus and his forgiveness. I want Jesus to save me. I surrender me, all of me to all of you. Come into my life and save me and help me live for you. That's how we receive salvation. Maybe you're here today and you want to know more about that. You can fill out a connection card on the back of your life guide. Just put your name, your phone number, and say, hey, I'd like to know more about following Jesus. I will personally call you and help you understand more about that. But for most of us, we've already done that. So what do we do now? How do we live our lives? and experience all, to squeeze all the juice out of this life. We have to adopt the most popular psalm in all of the Bible, written by King David. This is our posture. This is how we live our lives. 23rd Psalm says, and this should be our daily motto for living. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for anything. He goes on and he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the good stuff. That's the good days. But David goes on. And for those days that are not so pleasant, David says, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
you prepare a table before me in the presence of the enemy around me. You anoint my head with oil and my cup just keeps running over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a what a sweet motto for living. Whether I'm in the victory days or whether I'm in the crosshairs of hell itself, I'm going to look to God and hang on because he's my shepherd and there ain't nowhere else to go. That's how we live our lives. And God will bless it and God will honor it. I want you to bow your heads and we're close. We'll close. Father, thank you so much for allowing Clark to read for me today and for allowing my voice to hold out. God, I pray that through the brokenness of my voice, your truth radiated through it. God, I thank you for your word. That's where the, the power and the truth that changes our life is at. God, I thank you so much that you are a delivering God, that you are a liberating God, that you're a gracious God. I thank you, God, that, that we're to, your word says we're to be thankful in all things. And that means sometimes on this, this new strategy, this new path, it's hard, God, you know it. You watch us, you hear our cries, but help us through it all, hang on to you because you see our destiny and you are leading us to that place. God, for those that may not have a working relationship with you today, I pray God that they would reach out and listen to the, your Holy Spirit as it beckons them to come into the family and we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.